why do churches exist? Here we are on this celebratory day as we rejoice in the beginning of a new church here in Bedford. This isn't the first church to get started in Bedford, and I trust it won't be the last either. So why do churches exist? One popular raison d'etre these days is that of a social club. You know, humans are intrinsically relational creatures. We all want to belong. We all want relationships. And so in a lonely age dominated by technology and transience and impermanence, the church offers a sense of stability and friendship. The church becomes a social club. For others, the church can become a kind of moral reform group. That is, there are evils, whether in the human heart or in human society, that need to be rectified. We all tend to err without proper instruction. And so the church is a group of morally sensitive individuals, keen to have some of their moral uprightness rub off on their neighbors. They've always thought that religion was interesting, meaningful, and good for society. Thus, the church becomes another activist or moral crusader group. But where does Jesus fit in all of this? What about forgiveness? Are these the only two options as we begin Trinity Church of Bedford? Or might there be something more? Let's help answer these questions this morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50 this morning. So I'd encourage you to turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, you can find some at the back. And Zach would be happy to hand it to you. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and Zach would be happy to give it to you. If you're new to the Bible, the chapter numbers are the, the larger numbers. The verse numbers are the smaller ones. So then Luke, big seven, small 36. So far in the book of Luke, the author has narrated the miraculous and joyous birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus began his ministry in the region of Galilee, north of Jerusalem. And since chapter four, he's been ministering to large crowds. He's healed the sick and cast out demons and taught in synagogues and even resurrected a widow's son here at the beginning of chapter 7. And thus we arrive at our passage. We'll have just one section this morning, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. A right recognition of all that Jesus is leads to a radical response of love and devotion. A right recognition of all that Jesus is leads to a radical response of love and devotion. So read with me Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to, tell, to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but for the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. Well, our passage begins there in verse 36, when a certain Pharisee invites Jesus over for a meal. The Pharisees were a group of religious leaders in the day, known for their strict observance of God's law and their sometimes hypocritical application of it. So far in Luke's gospel, they, they don't have a good reputation. And so our passage begins on a slightly ominous note. We, we don't yet know the Pharisee's name, but we see there in verse 36 that he does offer some hospitality to Jesus. So unlike other religious leaders at the time, he, he wasn't openly hostile to Jesus. You know, it seems this Pharisee was intrigued by the Jesus figure, and likely invited him to dinner to perhaps learn more. So Jesus accepts the invitation, and that's when things start to go off script. Now look there again at verse 37. And behold, okay, like something big's happening, a woman of the city, a sinner, shows up. You know, perhaps she had just heard Jesus' preaching, which is where she may have learned of the dinner party, and so she just shows up unannounced, uninvited. What does Luke mean by saying that she is a sinner from the city, right? So we're all sinners. Wouldn't really be saying much if Luke was just saying she's a sinner in that sense. No, it's most likely the case that this woman was a notorious sinner. She was known for being a sinner. It could have been a few things, but most likely it means that she was a prostitute. And so of all the places she could find herself that night, she finds herself at a Pharisee's house. I wonder how much courage it took for her to show her face there in light of her past. And yet she did come, she was courageous, and she came because she was compelled to see Jesus. She heard he's there, and she's not going to let anything stop her. Why? What's she going to do? What she want to do? Well, you see it at the end of verse 37. It says she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Uh, this was an expensive perfume, and apparently she brought it to anoint Jesus' feet. More on that in a moment. But in verse 38, things take a dramatic turn. Right? If it wasn't enough for this uninvited, sinful woman to show up at the religious leader's dinner party, intending to anoint Jesus, I mean, look at what verse 38 says. In standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet, 
uh, literally to drench his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. I mean, talk about a mood killer. Here this Pharisee was ready to have a nice theological discussion with Jesus. And in walks this sinner. And not content to stay in the background, she comes right up to the guest of honor. And there she shows lavish affection for Jesus. I mean, you notice that the the terms are not discreet, right? She was not whimpering. Uh, The Greek term is emphatic, but sobbing loudly. Her hair, which was the symbol of modesty and dignity, she let down. And then, again, the word is emphatic. She profusely is kissing Jesus' feet. She eventually comes to do what, or she eventually does what she came to do. But if she had hoped to do it discreetly, well, this was anything but that. Now, why did she go for Jesus' feet, right? That's interesting. That's strange. For one, literally, the dinner guests would be reclining at a low table on their elbows, and so their heads would have been at the table with their feet out, like spokes on a wheel. But more significantly, this woman stayed at Jesus' feet because she didn't view herself as worthy to approach him any further. I mean, did you notice that? It says she was standing at his feet. She didn't strike up a conversation with him, didn't dare to anoint his head, didn't kiss his hands. She goes for his feet. The dirtiest, smelliest, most dishonorable part of a person's body. You can imagine in ancient Israel 2,000 years ago, walking on dirt roads, uh, feet have not been pedicured. They've not, you know had the, those like rubs, right, that take all the, the skin cells off. Like, these are dirty, really dirty, calloused. She goes for his feet, and then she gives a most expensive alabaster perfume to his feet. I, I think the, the significance of that is that this is her best for his worst, her most expensive and precious item for his common, dirty, lowly feet. It's as if she wants to express her love for Jesus, but doesn't feel worthy to touch anything other than his stinky feet. And consider how she lays it all before Jesus. She goes all out in her tears. She lays her pain and sorrow at his feet. In her hair, she presents her glory in service to him. In her kisses, she offers her affection to him alone. And in her perfume, she sacrifices her wealth to his adoration. Friends, this woman lays down all that she is at his feet. Without saying a single word, she communicates Jesus, I give of myself entirely to you. Everything that I am and all that I have, it's for for you. My highest allegiance and devotion. You see, friends, this woman was marked by extravagant devotion to Jesus. It wasn't tepid. It wasn't reserved or measured. It was enthusiastic, all-out commitment 
to Jesus. And so I want us to notice that while this woman's love for Jesus is intensely personal, note that it was not at all private. No, her attachment to the Lord Jesus was on full display for all to see. And so, brothers and sisters, so it is to be with us. You know, faith in Christ is intensely personal. Uh, You individually have to choose to trust in Christ. Whether you're six years old or 60 years old, nobody can make that decision for you. Your parents can't make it for you. Your kids can't make it for you. It's intensely personal. You must trust in Christ. But while it's personal, it's never a private thing. Do you notice that? There's there's no such thing as radical, private devotion to Christ. There is only public devotion to him. Our, Our love for him overflows for all the world to see. Our affection in his person, our rejoicing in his work, our weeping over our sins against him our lives laid at the altar of his throne, it's meant to be lived out for all the world to see. And why does God design it this way? Because the devotion of our lives is meant to display his worth. The devotion of our lives is meant to display his worth. Put another way, our lives are to are to be so transformed and dedicated to Jesus that only someone so glorious, so beautiful, so compelling, so life-changing, so hope-inspiring could possibly explain it. The heights of his greatness are meant to be revealed in the, the depths of our devotion. But I wonder if all this sounds a bit excessive to you. I'm sure you you like Jesus, you value his teachings, you you think he's got a good example to follow. But doesn't it seem a bit over the top? Let's look now at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman that this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Again, notice that we still don't know this Pharisee's name. He's just called the Pharisee. Uh, It's as if he's acting true to form, true to character. He's the embodiment of a Pharisee. And it says that when when he saw what was happening, he's repulsed. You know, in one fell swoop, he chastises both Jesus and the woman. And it's really interesting what he concludes, right? You see it, if this man were a prophet. Part of that, I think, is that his reasoning is, this woman's a notorious sinner. Everyone knows her story. And so surely Jesus would know also if he was a prophet. And then kind of baked into that assumption is that if Jesus, if he knew how sinful she was, well, surely he would turn away from her. Not if he knew how sinful it was, surely he would draw near to her. The assumption is God's representative here on earth, God's ambassador, if that's who Jesus really were, well, he would shoo her away. 
Because that's what, that's what God is like, right? That's the Pharisee's assumption, that God acts that way. God shoes her away. But I don't think that's the only thing going on with the Pharisee's comment. He's actually, I think, adjudicating a dispute, different rumors floating around about who Jesus is. So just turn back a, a little bit, a few verses, to verse 14, still here in chapter 7. Luke 7, 14. Then Jesus came up and touched the funeral buyer, and the, the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. All right, so do you see what's happening? Jesus raises this boy up. People think, this is a prophet. And then the, the, the news goes out throughout the whole region. But then there's also a less flattering story going around. Look at verse 37, still in our chapter. Just two verses before our passage begins. Speaking to the Pharisees and the lawyers, Jesus said, the son of man... That's, he's referring to himself. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So do you see what's happening with this Pharisee as he sees the scene unfold before him? He's deciding which of these two reports is true. And he says, yeah, my buddies were right. This Jesus fellow, he can't be a prophet. He's a, glutton and a tax, he's a glutton and a drunkard. He's making friends with tax collectors and sinners. Friends, beware partially true statements about Jesus. To this Pharisee, there's no way that Jesus could both be true prophet of God and true friend of sinners. Oh, praise God, he's both. He thought there was no way that, that God would draw near towards sinners like this woman, sinners like you and me. And yet that was the whole point of Jesus' incarnation, wasn't it? It's the whole reason he came to earth, was to draw near. And so you see Jesus' response there in verse 40. Uh, the translation spot on, I love it. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> you see, it's precisely because Jesus is a prophet that he reads this guy's mind and he can answer his thoughts. And yet, though Jesus has a searing gaze into all this man's pride and wrongheadedness, he doesn't put him on blast. Notice the tenderness of Jesus' response. That same grace and mercy that he displayed to the woman in receiving her love, he now displayed towards this man who showed no love. Because for the first time, we learn this man's name, Simon. Jesus calls him by his name, Simon. He invites Simon into a dialogue. He draws him out, and he has a parable to tell. You see it in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. 
Now, which of them will love him more? All right, the story is simple enough. One debtor owes 500 denarii, which is the equivalent of a little more than a year and a half's uh, wages. The other debtor owes 50 denarii, which is like a month and a half wages. And through no merit in themselves, both men find themselves forgiven. Their debts are fully paid, fully canceled. And Jesus' question is simple. Which one will show greater gratitude, greater love? Simon answers correctly, if sheepishly, in verse 43, that the more indebted of the two would. And then the punchline comes in verse 44. This is how the parable applies in real life. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has drenched my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the moment I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, Simon, you were cool towards me. Lukewarm. You know, you didn't have open hostility towards me, but neither did you relish my appearing. You, you didn't love me. She was a better host than you. It, it wasn't that Simon's behavior was wrong per se. So there doesn't seem to be any requirement that Simon to have done the things Jesus mentions. But then again, they were common courtesies. And I, you know, I think verse 46 puts the contrast on full display. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Jesus' point is, you didn't think my head was worth cheap olive oil. She thinks my feet are worth her most expensive perfume. You couldn't inconvenience yourself for me, Simon. But for this woman, no service or active devotion was too great. There's nothing more that she could have given. Far from rebuking this woman's extravagant devotion, Jesus commends her and chastises Simon for his coolness. And so, friends, I wonder about you. Are you devoted to Jesus Christ? Are, are you sold out, all in, on loving and following the Lord Jesus? Or are you lukewarm? You know, it's not enough to simply be not hostile to Jesus. It's not enough to be ambivalent about him, to generally like him. No, Jesus is commending a wholehearted, devoted heart that is extravagant in its worship and its adoration. Does this describe you? Does how you spend your free time indicate the, the supreme worth of Christ? Or is it mainly de dedicated to selfish pursuits? Does the way you spend money indicate your love of Christ or your love of comfort and ease? Does the way you interact with coworkers indicate that you are all in on following Jesus, no matter the cost? Or that honesty and truthfulness are just the casualties of doing business? Are you ready to do whatever the Lord Jesus calls you to? Or are there parts of your life that are off limits to him? Friends, in all these ways and many more, we want to be like this woman. As a 
as individuals and as a church, we want to be sold out for Jesus. But why should we act this way? I mean, what's so special about Jesus that would compel us to live so radically? Well, verse 47 has the answer. Except for the fact that the ESV blows this, botches this translation. So, quick disclaimer, the ESV is an amazing translation. It's amazing. I think this is the worst mistranslation they have in the the entire Bible. And we chose it for our opening service. So, congratulations. Take an ESV home. If If you have a Bible, you can cross it out. You have my permission to... I mean, it just, pretty much like every article, every dictionary, every lexicon, every commentary agrees the ESV botches it. So you have my permission to write in your Bible, cross it out. Verse, the ESV says, therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much. A much better translation is the NIVs, which says in verse 47, therefore I tell you her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Or the CSB, again, has it similarly. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. Do you see the difference? It's not that her love and gratitude grounds or merits the forgiveness of her many sins. It is that her love shows that her sins have been forgiven. The forgiveness of sins is why she's so lavish in response with her love. And again, this is the whole point of Jesus' parable, right? The one who's forgiven unconditionally their debt, they respond with love. And so Jesus says the one who is forgiven little loves little. And the reason he's, he's saying all this is simply to say to Simon that, that her love, well, it's appropriate. You know, if you're doing all this love and devotion, um, you know, for someone who's a baseball player, as, it, as we are apt to do as in America, I think you'd ask the question, is it really worth all that love and devotion? But because she has been forgiven much, her loving much, is right. It's not excessive. It's not too much. She has, she's the debtor who's been forgiven 500 denarii. She knows she can't pay back her debt of sin. She knows how bad she's been. And so the enormity of God's forgiveness has overflown into an enormity of love and gratitude in light of the grace she's been shown. And so her response is spot on. Friends, Simon's problem was that he thought he was forgiven little. And so he loved little. He thought in his religious righteousness that he didn't need much forgiveness. He didn't need much of Jesus. You know, maybe he was in a little bit of debt, 50 denarii's worth. He wouldn't have claimed to be perfect. He knew he was a sinner in some sense. But he could handle it. You know, he thought he needed a little bit of forgiveness. And so he loved Jesus a little bit. This was Simon's problem, and friends, I wonder if it's your problem and mine at times. Our lives, our devotion to Jesus should be so inexplicable apart from the good news of what Jesus has done for us. That is, we should look 
way too excited about Jesus to those who don't know him, to those who don't know his grace, to those who don't know just how much we've been forgiven. Like, why do you give so generously? Don't you know there are lavish vacations to take? Why do you spend so much of your time serving the poor? Don't you know you could relax at home? Why are you so joyfully urgent in your evangelism? Don't you know there's this thing called Netflix? Why are you always praying for other Christians and meeting up to study the Bible? Don't you have better things to do? Why would you move from Washington, D.C. to Boston? Don't you know it's more expensive there? I mean, we could just go on and on. Brothers and sisters, the great sacrifices and affection of our lives should only make sense in light of God's great mercy. Uh, This is why we sang earlier, Jesus paid it all. Because now, all to him I owe. And so frankly, if our lives are more similar to Simon's lukewarmness, I wonder if we've forgotten the great depths of mercy we've, shown, we've been shown. Because you, you can imagine, right, the, the forgiven debtors get, get used to their status as forgiven. They try to have upright business dealings in the future. Life is busy, and they begin to forget the great debt that has been canceled. Oh, how easy it is to forget. Trinity Church of Bedford, this is why we have a weekly confession of sin. Because we need to be reminded of just how, how, how far we've sunk so that we can revel all the more in God's grace. There's an ever-present danger in the Christian life to forget and minimize the great grace we've been shown. To take it for granted. And so every week, we're going to confess our sins as a reminder of how regularly we need continually God's forgiveness. Put another way, the more deeply aware you are of your own sin, the more deeply aware you are of Christ's love and Christ's sacrifice. And thus, the more deeply moved you will be to love and gratitude. That's exactly what Jesus has been teaching Simon. And then in verse 48, he turns to the woman. Look there. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And here we see Jesus tenderly address this woman, brokenhearted over her sin and filled with love for the Lord. And Jesus reassures her, but the religious leaders, you know, no surprise here, they don't like it. Verse 49 reads, then those who were at the table, at table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Again, just as it's been throughout chapter 7, the question of Jesus' identity swirls around. Is he a prophet uh, or a friend of tax collectors and sinners? How can he definitively state that someone's sins are forgiven? I mean, who does he think he is? Well, friends, the testimony of the Bible is clear. Jesus is God the Son incarnate. He's truly God and truly man. The second person of the Trinity come to save us from our sins. He lived a life of perfect holiness and love and obedience. And then he went to the cross. And there he died on behalf of sinners as the substitute for tax collectors. Sinners like you and me. Everyone who would put their trust in him. He died bearing the wrath of God that we deserve, taking in himself the penalty of our sins. He paid our debt. He canceled our debt. 
and then he rose three days later from the dead, proving that he is king over all. And so it's on the basis of this work that Jesus can declare that this woman's sins are forgiven. Right? It's incredible. She doesn't know about the cross. Think about her love and devotion, and she's not even seen the full measure of Christ's love. We have. How much more grounds do we have for love and devotion? It's, it's only Jesus who can forgive this woman's sins. Because it's Jesus, as truly God, he's the one she has sinned against. And as truly man, he is the one who has paid her debt. And so he alone is qualified to say, your sins are forgiven. You know, because if, if, if you owe $10 million to the bank, and I just come up to you, and I say, your debt's canceled. That's not going to do much. I don't have authority to make that declaration. You don't owe the debt to me. So in canceling this woman's debt, Jesus is claiming a prerogative that is only God's. This is why in Mark 2, when Jesus forgave a man's sins, the religious leaders responded, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, again, they just, they get enough of the truth. That's true. Only God can forgive sins. You should therefore conclude that Jesus is God. God alone can forgive sins, and that's why Jesus can tell this woman, your sins are forgiven. And so our passage concludes in verse 50. Look there. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thus again, we see that it was the woman's faith her trust in who Jesus is and not any deeds of love that she did that brought her peace with God. Her devotion to Christ was not the grounds of her forgiveness, but the result of it. And so Trinity Church of Bedford, why does this church exist? You know, I think there, there are basically two options for us. We can become a bunch of Simons, wagging our fingers at people, telling all the ways they're living wrong, telling them to, to fix their lives and get it together. Or we can realize that we are the sinful woman. We are those whose sins are many, but his mercy is more. And so we want to tell everyone we can about that mercy. I mean, it's so great. This church exists as a group of forgiven sinners, telling each other and all who will listen, we found a Savior. We found the Savior. He's forgiven all our debts, and he can forgive yours. Friend, the enormity of your sins is no obstacle to the forgiveness of them. They're great in numerous quantity or their deep and severe quality is no barrier to Christ canceling your debt. You have only to come to him in faith. As the woman put her hope and trust solely in Christ, so should you, even today. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. If you're depending, like Simon, upon your own righteousness, look to Jesus. Don't think that you need to clean yourself up before 
you come to Jesus, before you trust in Christ, no, in just a moment, we'll sing these words. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Oh, friend, do you feel your need of him? If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Trust in Christ, even today. He will pay your debt. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we, we are amazed at your mercy that you would send Christ even for sinners such as us. Our sins are many. Father, we pray that you'd grant us an awareness of our sins, conviction of them. Not that we would get mired in them, but that we would recognize anew and afresh how great your mercy is. We pray that we would respond with lives of love and devotion because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Father, if there are any here who have not trusted in Christ, young or old, we pray that they would come to Jesus even today and trust in him for the forgiveness of all their sins. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.